So if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew 7, please. Matthew 7. Um, if you use one of the Bibles provided for you, it's page 812. We're, we're in the conclusion of this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has been preaching for a few chapters now. He starts it in chapter 5, and he begins to, um, begins to describe what a disciple is. It starts out with just those 12 disciples, just a few people around him, and, uh, and he's speaking very personally to them. And then quickly, the, over time, the, uh, the, the crowd increases, and there's more and more people there. And, and by the end of it, it says that in verse 28 of chapter 7, where we're at, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so the crowds had gathered and they're listening to him and he describes what a disciple is. And, and then he tells what their function is, their light, their salt. He tells them that they need to let that light shine before other people so they would see good works and then do what? Glorify God in heaven. That's chapter 5, verse 16. And then he goes into this idea of, of his relationship with the law. And he tells him this shocking statement, and I, and I keep reminding you about this because I think if you don't get this, you don't really get the Sermon on the Mount, is that he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And that was, again, just shocking to the people who were hearing that because in that day, the scribes and the Pharisees, nobody was more spiritual than them, at least in their estimation. And so then he begins to unpack what that means. And of course, he's getting at the heart. He's getting at not just mere obedience, not just doing things to check the box or to, to say you've done it. He's talking about heart. And he gives six illustrations of what he's talking about at the end of chapter five. Chapter six, then he begins to, uh, or that's, yeah, yeah, chapter five. And then chapter six, he, he starts talking about uh, how we are to live out the life of discipleship. And he gives illustrations of fasting, of giving uh, gifts to the poor, uh, prayer. Uh, this is where the section of the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to look at after we finish this series. And, and then in chapter seven, he starts to land the plane and he talks about judging and asking and the golden rule. And then last week we looked at beware of false prophets. And then this week we get this text of scripture in verses 21 through 23. And, you know, I, I shared this in the, the weekly email sent out to the church with D. Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was writing on this text of scripture. He had this to say. He says, these surely are in many ways the most solemn and solemnizing words ever uttered in this world, not only by any man, but even by the Son of God himself. Indeed, were any man to utter such words, we should feel compelled not only to criticize, but even condemn him. But they are the words spoken by the Son of God himself, and therefore demands our most earnest attention." You know, I've been simultaneously been looking forward to this text and dreading this text. I, I wrote to the deacons last night about something, and then at the end of it I said, hey, just pray for the sermon tomorrow because my soul has been in anguish all week over this. And I don't say that lightly. I don't, I don't say that in a, in, a, in a melodramatic way. But this text is so sobering to me. Let me read it to you. 
Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Can you see why Lloyd-Jones said what he said about this text? Very sobering text of Scripture. I'm just going to dive in. I think that Jesus, uh, he does at least three things in these short verses, these three short verses here. First of all, he addresses our words. He addresses our words He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what I don't want to communicate here is I don't want to communicate that the words that we say are unimportant because words are indeed important. What we say is important. In fact, the Bible actually gives us a lot of scripture to back that up to say that what we say is very important. Let me share a few of those verses with you. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It says, Paul's writing there. He says, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, but with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And so what Jesus is saying here back in Matthew 7, he's not saying that words are unimportant. He's not saying that we should not consider our words carefully. He's not saying that what we say doesn't have weight and consequence to it. Paul in Romans chapter 10 tells us that this is one of the ways or this is the path that we obtain salvation in the sense of that we've got to confess Jesus as Lord. Confess is the word which means to say the same thing as or to agree with. So we have to say the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus. We have to understand who Jesus is according to what God says who Jesus is in order for us to have salvation. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Boy, that's sobering. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, he's not saying when he says, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, run to the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying, don't worry about the words. Words are unimportant. That's not what he's saying. Words actually are important. In Matthew chapter 15, I didn't put it on the screen, but you can just write it down. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is answering the question about what defiles a person. The the people, the Pharisees were accusing the disciples of of being uh, in defilement because they didn't wash their hands. And what Jesus says there in Matthew 15 is he says, it's not what goes into the person that defiles someone, it's what comes out of the person. And he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he's talking about that the mouth is an indicator of what is most important to us. And so words are important here. And so when Jesus is addressing their words, he's not saying they're not important. They are important. And one of the reasons why is because our words reveal what is most important to us. What we, we talk with the most ease about what we love the most. And so honestly, if I can make some practical application here at this junction of the sermon, I would say this, is that what, you, what is the most easy thing for you to talk about, that's a good indication of what you love the most. And what you find very difficult to talk about, you need to check. 
Now, sometimes that's okay, but I'm telling you, when I, when I talk with people, and sometimes when the conversation goes to spiritual things, and I see uh, like some tension come up, or I see a tensing up, and they don't really know how to talk about Jesus at all, that's concerning to me. Because if we're believers in Christ Jesus, if he is our Savior, if he has redeemed our soul, then we should find it pretty easy to talk about him. Now, if I told you that I loved my wife, if I told you I loved her and that she was the most important thing to me and that, that I just adored her, it seems like you guys would say, wow, he's a great husband, okay, right? And, and I am. But um, if I said, but then if you talked to me, you said, well, tell me a little bit about a nook. And I would say, well, you know, she's, she's nice. She married me. I'll never forget that day. She said, I do. And I said, yes. He said, well, tell me a little bit more about her. Well, you know, she's got glasses, I think. Yeah. No, okay, glasses. Yeah. You know where I'm going with this, okay? If I had a hard time talking about my wife, if I never wanted to talk about her, I didn't know much about her, but yet I proclaimed to love her, you would see a disconnect. But yet we do this all the time, or Christians do this all the time, is that when it comes to talking about Jesus Christ or, or who he is to us, it's like, we, it's like there's a brain freeze. Now, part of the reason why I think that is is because we tend not to think about him or there's a temptation not to think about Jesus six days a week. And what I'm pleading with us today is love Jesus Know him. Meditate on him. Get to know him. And I'm going to tell you, you will find talking about him exponentially easier. Because words are important. And Jesus is not saying here that um, you, that, that he's, he doesn't care about what he says. However, even though words are important, what the point Jesus is making here is though mere words do not impress God. Okay? Mere words do not impress God. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, as we said here, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, run to the kingdom of heaven. So there's going to be a time when, when Jesus hears people say, Lord, Lord, and he's not going to let them in. There's going to be a time when people are going to say, Lord, I did this in your name. I, I did these acts in your name. And Jesus is not going to let them in. That's what this text says. And we need to understand this. Because words, just mere words, don't impress Jesus. I read to you earlier at the call to worship, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17. I told you that the crowds at the time, they were saying, Hosanna, and they were saying, Son of God, and they were saying, Son of David, the Most High, and they were giving praise to him. They were caught up in this moment of that Jesus was the Messiah, and they were praising him. The children in the temple were praising him. Now, what we know is that just a few days later, not all of them, but some of those same people would be saying something completely different. They would be saying, crucify him. 
You see, mere words aren't impressive to God because God sees the heart. God sees where our heart is at. And so I'm all for praising God. And man, we had some good singing this morning and there was some great praise of God and it ministered deeply to my soul. And I was so thankful for that. But God is not impressed with just mere words. And that's what he's getting at here. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I think of Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8. It says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's quoting Isaiah 29 there. He says, they have have come near to me. They They have honored me with their lips, but their heart is completely far away. And I wonder, I wonder how many times in Sunday after Sunday in churches like ours and other churches, could this verse be directly applied that we have honored him with our lips, but our hearts are completely far from him. You can start to see why I've dreaded preaching this message. This is a hard text. But I am no pastor, I am no friend of yours if I ignore this. This is what Jesus says. And I started thinking as I was studying this, and I said, you know, you know, God is not impressed by your words. And then I thought, you know, what could I possibly say to impress God? We act like we can impress him sometimes, but what could you or I possibly say that would be impressive to God? Think about this for a second, okay? Think about this for a second. This is the God who, according to Genesis 1 and Hebrews chapter 11, that he spoke and galaxies were formed. Okay, by his word, he spoke and galaxies were formed. This is also the same person that Jesus, that when he was sitting in a boat asleep and the storm came up and the disciples were fearing for their lives, he stood up and said, peace be still. And the storms ceased at his word. And they were amazed. They said, who is this man that at his word, the storms and the wind and the sea obey him? This is the same man who in the garden, when they came, the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. And they fall down backwards. What could I possibly say to impress this God? We can't. And so sometimes I think that we think if we say the right things or or we have the right words or the right response or whatever, that God is somehow impressed with that. Having the right theological answer or the right theological position does not impress God. I mean, look at this. It says, they say, Lord, Lord. Now, is Jesus Lord? Yes, he's Lord. He is Lord. And so they were agreeing with this. They were agreeing that who Jesus was, that he was who he said he was. But having the right answer is unimpressive to God. Belief that Jesus is Lord is important. I'm not minimizing that. But James is very quickly to put that in, give us a reality check about that. He says, you believe that God is one? Oh, you do well. Even the demons believe that. James chapter 2, look it up. And so having the right theological answer for something, Jesus is blowing that out of the water. Now, why? Because there was a group of people 
that everyone revered and everyone looked up to, that had the right answers. But Jesus would go after time and time again. This would be the Pharisees. And he was saying, a true disciple of mine isn't someone who's so concerned with just being able to answer the survey question correctly or answer the Bible quizzing question correctly. He says, that's not what I'm concerned about. A true disciple of mine One who will inherit the kingdom of God, one who is a citizen of the kingdom, is someone who I have their heart. That's what he's saying. And so he addresses our words there. But then he continues on. He doesn't stop with just words. Secondly, he addresses our actions. He says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. He, he addresses what we do at this point. It's not just what we say. He's, he's talking to the people, not only that, just, that maybe what they say, but they have no actions to back it up. Now he's talking with people who say the right things, and they're doing impressive things, spiritual things, things that, that would blow our minds. Now, I, I've done a lot of things for God in, in my life and everything, but I have never cast out demons that I know of, Okay. I did have a guy one time come into the church office night here. It was another church I was ministering in, and, and he was all upset. He was asking for some money, and I told him I wasn't giving any because I didn't have any to give to him. And he said he was in terrible shape and all this stuff. I said, let me pray for you. So I put my hands on his shoulders and started praying for him, and he interrupted me. He says, preacher, i got to stop you right there. And so I'm praying, so you do the one-eye thing, you know, and so I look up at him, and he says, they gone. And I was like, Okay. And he says, the demons are gone. I said, well, let's thank God for that. And so, <laughs> you know, so I didn't know how to respond to that. So I don't know what happened there or not and everything. But, so, but to my knowledge, I haven't cast out demons, okay? He says, mighty, many mighty works in your name. Do many mighty works in your name. There's are people here, what Jesus is addressing here. He is saying, these aren't the people that just show up on Sunday morning and go home and never do anything for God again. These are people who are doing things that are actually working. And actions are important. Just like words were important, actions are important. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 says this, Each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Let's talk about the judgment day. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work ha- that anyone has built on the foundation survives. The foundation is Jesus Christ we know from that text. He will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. So here we see that we can get some rewards for works. We saw that earlier in chapter 6. It says that you need to do things for, you need the right thing for the right reason. Otherwise, you lose the reward. So works are important. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done, our actions in the body, whether good or evil. And so actions do matter. What we do are important. Jesus is not saying here, well, you can't do anything, so don't worry about it. He's not saying that. He's getting at something far deeper than this. Actions are important, but just like words, mere actions do not impress God. Verse 23, I don't know if you connected this, but I'm going to point this out to you. He says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
You know what is shocking to me about this text? Is that he is calling prophecy in his name, casting out demons in his name, and many mighty works in his name, works of lawlessness. That's what he's saying here. He says, apart from you, workers of lawlessness. Now, wait a minute here. Is God just some kind of God that is impossibly pleased? What is he talking about here? What about Psalm? Remember uh, uh, Saul, not Psalm, Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Remember when he sacrificed, when he wasn't supposed to sacrifice, and then he's, 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 uh, uh, he's interacting with Samuel, and what does Samuel tell him? He says, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. It's better to obey God than to sacrifice. I think of also in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, if you're taking notes, that's right, Luke 10, 20. This is the text where Jesus sends out 72 disciples. And they go out, and they're ministering. And they come back, and they saw some great things happen. And they come back, and they're rejoicing, the Bible says. They come back rejoicing, and they're, and they're talking to Jesus, and they're saying, look, even the demons were subject to our name there. What, how does Jesus respond? He talks about he saw Satan falling from heaven and all that stuff. And then he says this. He says, rejoice. Not that demons were subject to your name, but that your name is written down in an eternal book. He says, don't worry about all these manifestations because Jesus knew something. He knew that there are spiritual powers that can mimic God's work. Do you remember Moses? Remember in the Exodus? Remember, there was a few of those, those miracles, the things that Moses did, that the Egyptian magicians were able to re- reproduce. Remember, last week we looked at 2 Corinthians, and it talks about how that we should not be surprised about these false teachers that we were considering in verse 15. And he says, don't be surprised. They're going to look like, like uh, 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 you know, uh, really good people because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And how does he... How does he uh, perpetuate that myth? He does things. And so not everything that you see, not all the actions and the fruit that you see are necessarily good things. And Jesus knows that. I was thinking about this as, you know, what can I possibly say to impress God? But what can I possibly do to impress God? You know, I put this image of this temple up there. It's in Athens. And um, we have always... As humans, the human race, we have always tried to impress God with what we've done. Way back in Tower of Babel, remember that? We're going to be like God. We're going to reach the heavens. All these temples. How many temples do you think have been made in efforts to impress a God? In October, uh, Joe and I are going to be going to India. And uh, I'm going to be teaching two courses uh, for Henry John uh, one of our missionaries there is the seminary there, Northern uh, North India Baptist Seminary. Uh, I appreciate your prayers as I, I prepare for that. Um, two courses, uh, Early Church History and uh, Hermeneutics, Survival Interpretation. So pray for me as I prepare. Pray for Joe as he's got to listen to me t- talk for 30 hours <laughs> uh, that week. Literally 30 hours that week. So uh, he's going to hate the sound of my voice by the time we get back. But um, in India... There are so many temples. In America, there are so many temples. But these are usually called something else. Usually they're called arenas or stadiums. 
And lest I, you know, cast stones at other people, the team that I cheer for has got the biggest one. Okay? We, we do this. And we try to impress God. We build great monuments. But what can we possibly do to impress God? Let's take about, let's, let's move off the, the avenue of, of, of like building. They, well, maybe I can be good and God would be impressed with that. Maybe I can be obedient and God will be impressed with that. Jesus was perfectly obedient. We are not perfectly obedient. How are we going to impress God with that? Maybe we say, I'm willing to suffer great loss. I'm willing to sacrifice great things while I'm on this earth. How in the world could that possibly impress God? Jesus sacrificed everything. God sent his only son to die, to, to die an unjust death. First of all, to be humiliated, to live on this earth as a human, and then to die an unjust death. How in the world could we say that we could sacrifice something to impress God? To suffer injustice. You see, you and I, there's nothing we can do to impress God. And this is what he's saying here. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so the point of this text here is that we need to understand what it truly is to be saved. He addresses our thought, our words. He addresses our actions. But finally this morning, Jesus does one more thing. He gives us hope. He gives hope. He doesn't just stop in this text, the scripture, and just say, you cannot be saved. No one can be saved. First of all, he says that salvation is possible. He doesn't say no one will be in heaven. He doesn't say that there will be zero people in heaven because no one is worthy. Jesus and God understand that everybody is unworthy of salvation. He understands that there's nobody that deserves to go to heaven. And I pray that you really believe that. I pray that you believe that you do not deserve heaven. If I were to tell you, if I were to ask you the question, if I were to say, do you deserve to go to heaven? If you pause at all, if you say, I think so, you got it wrong. Because the answer is not, yes, I deserve to go to heaven. The answer is no, I do not deserve to go to heaven, but Jesus is willing to take me there. You see, Jesus says that we can have eternal life. He says it's the one who does the will of my Father. Now, what does that mean? You say, well, Jeremy, you were just talking about actions. Don't save us. That God is unimpressed with our actions. Now it seems to be Jesus contradicting himself here when he says, well, it's the one who does the will of my Father. What is he talking about here? Well, I think it's the end of it. When Jesus reveals that salvation comes by knowing him. So he says that salvation is possible, and he reveals that salvation comes by knowing him. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The key of understanding the hope in this text of Scripture is that word, knew. He says, I never knew you. What does Jesus mean by that? What he means by this is that there's a relationship there. This is how the word is used consistently throughout the scriptures about that there's some type of relationship between two parties. 
And doing the will of the Father that he talks about in verse 21 is only possible by knowing Jesus. And so the question that you and I have to wrestle with right now is, do we know Jesus? I mean, do you know him? I'm not asking. I'm not asking how many times you said Lord. I'm not asking how long you've been part of this church. I'm not asking how long you've been a, a professing believer. I am asking you, do you know Jesus? That is what he's getting at here. Because true belief moves an immovable God. True belief moves an immovable God. You said, no, wait a minute, Jeremy. If he is immovable, then he can't be moved. This is a paradox. You're contradicting yourself here. No, because the salvation of your soul is an impossible feat anyway, but God makes it possible. Now, let me explain that. Uh, I wasn't going to have you turn there, but go go over to Matthew 19. I, I, I want you to see this, okay? Go over to Matthew 19. This is page... Uh, 824, if you're using the Bibles provided for you. This is a text of Scripture. It starts in verse 16 when there's a rich young man that comes to him and he's asking him some questions and he tells them how he could have eternal life. He's asking Jesus how he can have eternal life. This is Matthew 19. Okay, He says, how can I know that I have eternal life? And so Jesus dialogues with this man for a couple times and then he gets to the point, many of you know this story. For those of you who don't or just need to be reminded, Jesus tells him to keep the law. He says, I've done that. And then he says, um, in verse 21, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And the man walks away sorrowful. He leaves Jesus. He does not follow him. And Jesus knows. Now, he wasn't saying that the path to eternal life is giving everything to the poor. But what he was getting at, he was getting at the heart of this man. He knew that this man loved possessions and, and that his heart would not be fully given to Jesus. And so he says, you got to give up this if you're going to be my disciple. And he leaves following. Now, verse 23 is an is a, is a awesome verse. He says this. Truly, I say to you, he's talking to his disciples. The guy just leaves, so he turns to his disciples, uses this as a teaching moment. He says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, look up here. How did the disciples respond? Didn't remember? They said, who could be be saved then? They're astonished. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Now, that is not the way you and I respond to that. If if, if Jesus were to tell us today, well, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved, you and I would be like, ah, rich people. You know, we would say, of course I can't be saved. God saves people like me. But, but the disciples, why, why, did, why are they astonished? Because they understood. They thought that if someone had rich blessings and things like that, that came from God. They knew it came from God. And they said, if God's given them all this wealth and all these things, then surely they have his favor. Surely they have eternal life. If they have riches here, why do they not have riches there? Now you can start to see why they would think this. How does Jesus respond With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
He's not talking about shoving a camel through an eye of an eagle there. He's talking about a salvation of a soul. He says that's an impossible thing with man. There is no way man can save their soul. There is no way. You could easily, you could, you could much more easily take the camel and shove it through the eye of a needle. And this is not talking about an inn. It's actually talking about an actual needle. It's not talking about a gate. It's talking about the eye of a needle. For those of you who are seamstress, you know I've tried to do it three times in my life. And I failed every time, so I gave it up. Okay? Getting that thread through that thing, can't do it. Okay? It is impossible with man. Okay? Women, it's possible. Man, it's impossible. Okay? <laughs> He's talking about salvation of souls, though. He says it's impossible for man to be saved. But with God, all things are possible. Now, I want you to see that they were astonished by this. And he's talking about the salvation of souls. Now, I said just a second ago that true belief moves God. How so? Because up at this point, God seems to be pretty unimpressed or impossibly impressed. And up to this point, he's basically saying, you can't say, you can't do anything that's going to move me. You can say all the right things and you can do all these awesome actions, but I'm going to tell you on that day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. True belief, though, is what moves God. And this is where we're going to have to break away from this text a little bit, but I want you to see in chapter 8 of Matthew. So it's just the next page from the text we're at. So this is page 813. I want you to see this in, in this. A centurion comes to him. It was, it was a, a person who um, he uh, had a servant that needed to be healed. And so he comes to Jesus. And uh, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And we see this in verse 7. But the centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to come. He goes, I tell people go and they do it. He goes, you're more powerful than me. You say he's healed, I believe it. He's going to be healed. So just say the word and heal him. You don't even have to come to my house. Notice how Jesus responds to this in verse 10. He says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marveled. Here. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 6, we talked about this several weeks ago. Jesus again marveled, but this was that time it was at their unbelief. It was when the people weren't, the disciples were not believing him. The Bible says in Mark 6 6 that Jesus was astonished. He marveled. To get a sense of what we mean by this word marveled there, we could see what the, an illustration of would be in Luke chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. There's a connection, though, that, give us, that I think gives us an understanding of what this word means. Verse 43 of Luke 9 says, And they all were astonished. This is after Jesus healed a boy. They were all astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to them, and the text goes on. So the, if you want to understand when it says in Matthew 8, verse 10, that Jesus marveled, there's this idea of astonishment. Much like the disciples, this is all the same word, the disciples, they were astonished at the majesty of God on display. And they were amazed, and they were surprised, and they were just in awe of this. The only time I could find in all of Scripture that Jesus is astonished 
is when he considers the faith or the lack of faith in humans. This is the only time that Jesus says that he marvels at this, is that when the centurion had great faith in him and said, I believe you, my heart is yours, everything that I have is yours, and and at your word I will do whatever you say, Jesus was amazed by that. Because Jesus understood that was a work, the miraculous work of the Father. Because humans, by their own accord, would be against Jesus and would reject him. They may draw near with their lips because they want to get something in return. They, want, they may do some good things so they could get some favor that when the judgment day comes, they can roll out their list of accomplishments and say, see, uh, see what I've done here? But Jesus knows. Jesus knows that man's heart is selfish and man's heart is about himself. And so when Jesus saw while he was on the earth people's heart given over to him, given over to the Father, he was amazed because he understood it to be a miracle of faith. He was moved by that. So, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that's a gift from the Father that Jesus is astonished with. But make sure you have this faith. Make sure that you know him. This is what Jesus was saying. He says, I never knew you. I didn't have a relationship with you. So please, I'm begging you, do what 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Put aside all the other framework that you've, that you've gone through. I'm not, again, if you're starting to think, well, I've taught Sunday school and I've done this. Wrong list. Get rid of that. Think, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you believe in him? Are you willing to give him everything? This is what Jesus is talking about because there are going to be many people on that day who are surprised. And I don't want it to be any of you. So please don't trust in your theologically correct vocabulary. Don't trust in your mighty works. Do you know Jesus? Do you want to know him above all else? I couldn't think of a better way to conclude this sermon than just quoting the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, he says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you don't have a desire to know Jesus more, please repent and follow Christ because this is according to Matthew 7. He says, this is how you get eternal life. It's a relationship with me and spending time with me. So my prayer is today that anyone here today, 
It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter if this is your first time in church. It doesn't matter if this is the first time you're hearing this or the, the millionth time you're hearing this. If the Spirit of God is impressing upon your heart to repent and ask God to save you from your sins and to pursue the life of knowing Christ, take care of that today. The devil's going to try to get you to second guess that. He's going to say, well, what are people going to think? I'll tell you what people are going to think. People are going to rejoice. Don't worry about what people think or what they say. There's too much at stake here. I believe faith is a gift from God. And when you truly have faith, you want to know Jesus. So do you know Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would have a passion as a church to know you. And that doesn't mean necessarily more Bible facts, although that's important. I pray that everyone in this room would have a burning passion in their soul placed there by you to know Jesus because when we get to know you more, that's when everything becomes yours. That's when the idols get crushed. That's when we pursue righteousness. That's when we are actually living out what the Beatitudes were of poor in spirit and meek and everything that was listed that comes from a relationship with you of pursuing you and knowing you of having our hearts fully given over to you and so I pray Father I know that there are things that distract us and it's possible for us to slip back into that even if we have faith and I pray that you would rebuke us of that and that we would forsake that and go back to following you passionately but Father I do believe I do believe that there are people that need to repent for the very first time and follow after you. And so I pray that you give them the courage to do that in their seat, that they could talk to me or, or another pastor, elder, deacon, friend here that knows you. Father, Lord, please, do what only you can do. Salvation of the soul is impossible with man. There's nothing else I can say. But it's possible with you. And so I give it to you and I say, you do as you can do and only you can do and we will worship you. In Christ's name we do pray.